NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. You can crush your fingers and all your toes during a data center migration. You can knock on wood, pluck a dozen four-leaf clovers, or look to your lucky stars for a successful office expansion. You could hold your breath, shut your eyes, and say all the world wishes to help avoid cyber attacks. But none of that truly helps you. Because Next Level Moments need the Next Level Network. With the security, reliability, and expertise to take your business further. AT&T Business, the network you can rely on. What goes best with your most fuego playlist? Dancing with friends and a Bacardi cocktail in hand. Bring a little Caribbean flavor to your day with Bacardi rum. Perfect for mixing the most refreshing mojito or piña colada. Learn more at Bacardi.com. Bacardi, do what moves you. Live passionately, drink responsibly. Bacardi and the Bat Device are trademarks. Bacardi USA Incorporated, Miami, Florida. Rum, 40% alcohol by volume. This is Red Inca, I am Jared Kimber, and today we're going to talk about rape price. And if your reaction to that is, wait, who, what? That's okay. Price was a Zimbabwean spinner for nearly a decade, but he's not a famous player by any stretch. But for those of us who love watching his anger-filled, spoiling spells of left-arm fingerspin, he became a bit of a cult hero. So I got a special guest to come on and speak about him. I'm Tristan Holm, and I'm the features editor at QuickBuys. In this episode, we discuss what Zimbabwe cricket was like way back then, Price's angry, flat-footed style, and his one IPL match. Players like Ray Price have such interesting careers, but they're barely talked about when they play, and when they retire, they just kind of disappear into this nothingness. For me, though, I think Price was too angry and too miserly for that to happen, so thankfully Tristan wrote about him recently, and I brought him on to discuss the snarky, slow, left-arm orthodox man from Zimbabwe. Tristan, it's really weird that for a little while, Zimbabwe had this world-class spinner available to them. They did, yeah. He kind of slipped in under the radar a little bit. Someone who really based his game on being effective, knowing that he was never going to be pretty. Yeah, I mean, Ray Price uh, <laughs> is very flat-footed. And what that means is that if you were to watch him run, it basically looks like he's pulled both of his hamstrings. So he's not athletic and he can't run very quickly at all. If you watched him field, it was equally ungraceful, but he just loved the game of cricket. And so he figured out a way to be pretty good at something in it. And that kind of involved a lot of hard work. It involved doing the basics really well, which is something that Zimbabwe were generally really good at when he was growing up in the 1990s. Um, the country had a lot of really sound coaches at that time who were coaching pretty strongly according to the manual. I mean, you didn't see a lot of, um, I guess you had a guy like Andy Flower, who was an extra talent and was reverse sweeping, which wasn't that common at the time, but also reverse sweeping really well. 
But most of the other players in Zimbabwe at that time were just really sound cricketers based on very good coaching. And and that's kind of the background that Ray Price came out of. And he really just stuck at it. I guess by the time he was, as you say, a world-class spinner, it was around the late 2000s, early 2010s. And he'd done a lot of mileage first in Zimbabwe, then in county cricket, and then back in Zimbabwe again. What was cricket like in Zimbabwe in the late 2000, 2010 sort of period? Because there's been a lot of different mini eras within Zimbabwe cricket. Was it quite strong at that point? No, it was incredibly bleak. I think that they'd had the rebel crisis of 2004 and Ray Price was one of the players who walked away at that time. And the next five years were the country was going through really desperate times economically and politically. Living in Zimbabwe was really tough. You didn't really do that unless you had to, I suppose. So that's why someone like Price took advantage of being wanted at Worcestershire and spent three years there. Towards the end of that decade, things basically got so bleak politically and economically that there was a change where the opposition was included in the government because ZANU-PF were told that they couldn't continue Otherwise, and that created a bit of a turnaround. What's worth also saying is that obviously cricket in that time was reflective of wider society. And so it had been very poorly run. A lot of questions remain over what happened to the money in that period. Zimbabwe played very little cricket in the back end of the 2000s, mostly just ODIs against Bangladesh. And um, it's worth noting that Ray Price moved home at the end of 2007 when things were pretty much at their lowest ebb, hyperinflation, not a lot of future or certainly not a rosy one. But I think like a lot of Zimbabweans who just want to live in Zimbabwe because the country has a certain spirit and a certain beauty to it that once you've grown up in it, it doesn't really leave you. So we saw that a few years ago when Brendan Taylor and Kyle Jarvis decided to move back despite having really good county deals. They both just wanted to go home. So it was the same for Price. Um, I think early 2007, he returned. And there were still two more years where things were really bleak in Zimbabwe cricket, when the politics changed a bit and the Zimbabwe dollar was thrown out and they adopted the US dollar as the national currency that allowed things to start flowing a bit more and then cricket started to turn around and Zimbabwe started playing more and as a result, they got better and Price was a a really big part of that. He was kind of the senior statesman in the squad at that point. So he played a, a key role in kind of shepherding along a group of players who'd been around in the Zimbabwe team for a very long time, but maybe hadn't made as much progress as they could have. And on top of him, well, I mean, you talked about his physical limitations before, but he always struck me as a player, especially when he came back in that period after, you know, playing in Worcester and mastering his art, I suppose. He probably came back as a much better bowler, effective bowler, I think you called him before. He's basically a spoiler in one-day cricket. But when he came back also, he just seemed to be really, really angry all the time. He looked like a sort of a tough guy anyway. I'm assuming he's not like that off the field, but on the field, he is one of the angriest spinners that, <laughs> that we've had in recent times, isn't he? Bit of an enigma in a way, because if you meet Ray Price, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And so you wouldn't think that this guy's going to be scowling at batsmen and giving them lip and that sort of thing. But he was just really competitive, I guess. And because of his limitations, as we've said, he was just looking to draw every little bit out of what he had. And I guess some of that was a a pretty slick sense of humor. And so he was using that as well, giving Batsman a hard time in between deliveries and 
rather than just kind of going back to his mark and then running into bowl because I don't think that would have been nearly as effective because batsmen would have thought, oh, this guy, I mean, he's not really turning the ball very much, doesn't have unusual variations or anything like that. But I guess by continually chattering with them, he was just maybe trying to get in their head a little bit and just put a little seed of doubt, I suppose. I always found him really captivating. And also because it was sort of the dichotomy between him bowling, basically very average straight left arm finger spin at times, and yet acting like he was Andre Nell. <laughs> it was an interesting yeah. sort of thing that he did. But the other thing is that he's not the only left arm finger spinner from Zimbabwe or even Southern Africa, I suppose, who's had that kind of personality. Paul Harris was a bit like that as well, wasn't he? Yeah, Paul Harris was, uh, he was also born in, well, in Zimbabwe, funnily enough. Mm. Yeah, very similar types of bowlers, similarly kind of limited on the athletic front. And also, I think Paul Harris actually started bowling quick when he was very young and then changed over pretty quickly to bowl spin and also just kind of stuck at it and also a very strong competitive streak. So again, Paul Harris is one of the nicer guys you'll find in South African cricket. But on the field, he was incredibly competitive and, and not afraid to give lip to someone like Sachin Tendulkar, even when he's bowling to Tendulkar in Nagpur or something like that. So that's a pretty good sense of the character, I suppose. Also, I guess uh, talking about attitude and Paul Harris and bowling to Sachin Tendulkar in Nagpur, that's actually a really great example of where these guys were so good is that they didn't really have an ego. So in that 2010 test, in the second innings, I mean, that match is generally remembered for Dale Stane's incredible bowling, but Paul Harris took wickets in the second innings that helped South Africa win that game by an innings. And with Tendulkar, he came over the wicket, left arm over the wicket, there was a little bit of rough outside the leg stump, but you know, not a huge amount to work with. And Tendulkar quickly showed that he could just pad him away all day if he wanted to, because he wasn't going to get him out. And of course, India are following on. And so really, there's no reason for Sachin Tendulkar to play a shot because he's just trying to survive and take the game as far as possible. But Harris didn't think, oh, okay, well, I'm going to do something else. I have to show some intent to get this guy out. He basically just played on Tendulkar's ego and said, well, I'm going to keep bowling this. You can pad me away for as long as your patience allows. <laughs> and as it turned out, that patience ran out. Tendulkar tried to play a shot, ended up tickling it onto the stumps. And Harris had the biggest wicket of all and South Africa went on to win. So I guess with these left arm spinners, it's often a case of saying, I'm not really a great bowler. <laughs> I'm not a wizard. I'm not going to get you out through a big turn or something that you're not expecting, but I'm going to work on your limitations and the limitations of your attitude versus my attitude. And that's where I might have some success. And the other thing is sort of from a physicality point of view, I mean, you talked about them being limited physically, but there's also something I've noticed very much when I started thinking about Ray Price, I started thinking about left arm finger spinners. If you look at Ashley Giles or Paul Harris or Michael Beer from Australia, mm -hmm. the Western sort of cricket left arm finger spin are usually quite 
big and strong guy. It's like Paul Harris is a very big man. Mm. Ashley Giles has the biggest hands of all time. He's a big guy as well. Michael Beer looked like an Aussie rules footballer at times more than a cricketer. And they had this big sort of muscular style of bowling. There must be something about the sort of Western left-arm finger spinners that ends up, it's almost like failed fast bowlers who are strong that you can't play a pull shot against them. It's got a weird subset of left-arm finger spinner. I mean, they're nothing like Ravi Jadeja or, you know, Murali Kartik or Imad Wazim. They're almost like a completely different species to themselves. They are, yeah. And I can't quite put my finger on why it is that they're effective. I think it probably does come back to attitude. I mean, I've never come across Michael Beer, but um, both, as I mentioned, both Price and Harris, they sort of seem to have grown up believing in themselves and that they can do something, even if by conventional standards, it, it really looks like they can't. Um, that is really just a kind of triumph of attitude over raw talent. And maybe it depends on your background as well. Coming from Zimbabwe or certain parts of South Africa, you're playing against a lot of really good players, you know, guys who've got natural talent is just a credit to the character of those guys that they were able to overcome that and plug away despite what it might look like. And Zimbabwe's never been a complete black hole for spin. Pitchers there quite often do help spin. Paul Strang was a very good bowler. Ryan Burl, I think, is there at the moment. There's been some decent finger spinners coming through at times as well. But even so, mm. Ray Price seems to be a bit at a level above most of the rest of those guys. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a couple of years ago, I'd say Zimbabwe's attack, especially in one-day cricket, was largely built around spin where they had Sean Williams and they had Sikanda Raza and they had Malcolm Waller as a part-timer and a number of players on the fringe as well, like uh, Wellington Masakadza. Yeah, all of those guys have been very good and very effective. I think Sean Williams is pretty close to Ray Price's level. He's pretty mm. canny and and very consistent. And maybe if Zimbabwe a bunch more cricket while Williams is still around, he might reach that level still. Because I think a big part of Price's success was just his longevity where he made his debut for Zimbabwe in a test match in 99. So by the early 2010s, he'd played a lot of cricket around the world and figured a lot of things out. And I guess Williams is not so far away from that. Now, the reason I started thinking about Ray Price is because you wrote an article, you've got a series on Crick Buzz, which I'm really enjoying, about bench warmers in the IPR. I think it's a, it's a really good idea, and you guys keep picking cricketers I really like. Tyrone Henderson was one of them, and then Ray Price. I think Dominic Thornley might be another one as well. Like, really random cricketers that I'm kind of obsessed with, yeah. but if I use them in conversation, even with a hardcore <laughs> cricket fan, you quite often get a bit of a play. Look, although Ray Price is probably a little bit more famous than Dominic Thornley, to be fair. Yes, or, or Bert Cockley, for that matter. Bert Cockley, yeah. Well, he went on to have an incredible story by not being a cricketer. True, yes. Perfect example. I remember, I think there was a big story on Cricket Australia on Burt Cockley about a year ago, and I hadn't thought about him in years. I used to be obsessed with him. So there's lots of those sorts of guys out there. So your piece about Ray Price is about the fact that he went to the IPL. And I'll be honest, I can't even remember him being in the IPL. So how did it all happen? It, it seems like in your article, it started with what he thought was a prank call. Yeah, that's pretty much right. I think he'd entered uh, three IPL auctions before. I asked him whether he would then spend the auction day kind of looking at checking his phone and following the auction. He said, no, it was generally over the holiday period. So he was generally fishing or uh, <laughs> playing with his kids on the beach. And, and I believe him. I think the only thing that Ray Price loves more than cricket is fishing. He's now made his own fishing brand basically makes um, spinning lures and sells them in Zimbabwe and exports a few. So in the 2011 auction, he hadn't been following it. He hadn't been picked. 
April came around and he was on holiday down in Durban with his family. He didn't have a phone on him, but somehow someone got his brother's number. And so his brother hands him a phone and, and says, it's, it's Sean Pollock. And Ray Price looks at him quizzically, but picks up the phone and Sean Pollock starts telling him that we've had an injury and we'd like you to come and join us with the Mumbai Indians. And so, you know, the logical conclusion that Ray Price drew was that this was a prank call because... It couldn't possibly be happening, basically. <laughs> and he said that after a little while, he finally believed Pollock and realized that he needed to get his ass to Mumbai. And that's how it all came about. It's incredible on many different levels, other than the fact that I'm sure Sean Pollock is such a gangster in Durban. He could probably have found Ray Price if he really tried hard <laughs> enough. He seems to know everyone in Durban. But from a very realistic point of view, it's he's not even just going to Rajasthan or wasn't the Kochi franchise. It was literally yeah. Mumbai, the franchise, and he would be going over to play at Wayne Ketty with Sachin Tendulkar around. It's a phenomenal situation to suddenly find yourself after years of playing for Worcester, which for those who don't go to county cricket, it's not the biggest county in the UK. Zimbabwe is <laughs> quite similar as well when it comes to an international team. So to suddenly be planted in the IPL's biggest franchise, that's phenomenal, isn't it? And it's a strange one as well, because the player that he was replacing that season was Moses Enriquez. So it's not like Mumbai had lost an international left arm spinner or something and decided that they needed a like for like. I guess an interesting thing that's come up during the series is just how many bench warmers they've been at Mumbai. I think that four of the first five pieces we wrote or, or something like that were bench warmers from Mumbai, Tyrone Henderson and Richard Levy and, and Ray Price. So it's possible that they had a trend of picking quite a few foreign players who they might need in a specific situation and didn't make a lot of use of. Role player type situations, isn't it? I mean, that's the kind of players you're sure. looking at, like experienced guys as well, weren't they? You could kind of drag and drop them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Price was very experienced by then because um, he'd just played the 2011 World Cup in India and had done extremely well, India and Sri Lanka. I think there was only one bowler who'd bowled 10 overs or more in the tournament and had a lower economy rate than him, and that was Ajanta Mendes. So his economy rate was below 3.5 runs per over in that World Cup. So he was at the peak of his powers, basically. And I guess also in the forefront of people's minds, having played all that cricket on the subcontinent just before. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because there were rumours at the time that there was going to be a big expose on the fact that Australia had done a go slow against Zimbabwe and, you know, sort of a match-fixing type situation. Nothing ever came out of the rumours, but there were a lot around. And I remember thinking, I watched that game. It just looked like to me that the Australians couldn't hit Ray Price off the square. <laughs> he just bowled a very good line and length. I yeah. think it was Haddon and Watson maybe were opening up and they just couldn't get him away. It looked like they wanted to smash him out of the ground, but they just couldn't. So he did have a very good tournament. So if he was ever going to be picked, I suppose that was the time. But the fact that he is a overseas spinner with no other skill set, he can't field and he can't bat, it's still a really interesting call. It's quite bizarre, really. It was no surprise that he only ended up playing one game as a result of that. I didn't get a sense from him that he knew who had made the call, because of course, a lot of strategy goes into the auctions and there lots of different inputs come in. I guess when you lose a player after a week or two of the tournament and you've got space for an overseas player, then maybe it's one or two people who would maybe make that call. But um, yeah, Price didn't quite uh, get the sense of how that had come about. I've got some experience on this because I've been with teams when this has happened mid-tournament. Mm. And I think you're right. What happens is when it's beforehand, everyone involved, so owners, owners, friends, owners, friends, friends, 
the coach, assistant coaches, captain, senior players, everyone's got an opinion. When the tournament's on, everyone's a bit more focused on what they're doing. And so you don't get that level. So it could have been one person literally saying, do you know what? We don't need another batting all-rounder. But what we might need is a gun finger spinner who can just come in, is suited to Asia, and when we need him, we can throw him in. So I could see how that happens. I mean, I'm not saying that makes it any less odd because <laughs> it was Ray Price and, you know, it sort of came from nowhere. What about the crowds? I know he only played in the one game, but it must have been an incredible atmosphere for him to play in front of. So the one game he did play in the IPL was against Kolkata at Eden Gardens and it was packed. He had played at the ground in an international match just a month, maybe six weeks before. But that game was against one of the associates. I can't remember offhand which it was. And I don't think it was more than a third or half full. And obviously, it's basically a neutral game. So it certainly wouldn't have been the noise that was the case that evening in the IPL. Price had played against Mm. home teams on the subcontinent in noisy grounds, but that still would have been a level up. And um, certainly at the opposite end of the spectrum to most mornings at Harare Sports Club when (laughs) you can generally (laughs) count the number of people in the stands. That ground fills up towards the end of the afternoon, but um, it's pretty sleepy in the morning. (laughs) And he does bowl, so he bowls three overs. Do you want to take us through how he went? I mean, he didn't go well. I don't want to spoil your story, but he didn't go brilliantly in his three overs. No, I mean, it wasn't the worst, you know. Mm. So he starts off, he's bowling to Jacques Cullis and, and Manoj Tiwari. And Cullis treated him with quite a bit of respect, doing what Cullis often did. You know, knock the ball down the ground for a single and that sort of thing. But three balls in, Tiwari gave Price the charge and, and smacked him over long on for six. The angle was too easy for Tiwari to tickle it down to fine leg for four and so his first over cost 14. Tendulkar was the captain at the time. He persisted with Price and, and that seemed to pay off when uh, Price just went for six runs in his next over. Callis, uh, again, just tickling him for ones. But then he left the attack after those two overs. And when he came back on, it was the 10th over and obviously things were heating up a bit. Yusuf Pathan was at the crease. Yeah, got a little bit ugly again. <laughs> I think the fourth delivery was slog swept miles into the stands at square leg. Callis was still in and he had his eye in and he drove over extra cover for four. And so the over ended up going for 13 and that left Price with figures of three overs, none for 33 and Tendulkar could look elsewhere. The interesting thing for me is that had his career maybe gone an extra couple of years, like an extra three or four years, he would have probably ended up playing in a lot of leagues around the world because he was perfectly suited to that spoiling role with the new ball, the sort of thing that someone like Imad Wazim does. Mm. And you see a lot of these sorts of finger spinners sort of go around the world, or at least he could have gone back in and, and had a very good career playing in the Blast in England. But what seems to have happened was he basically went from playing for Sachin Tendulkar in the biggest team in the biggest league in cricket ever to basically almost disappearing not long after that. He sort of just faded back into Zimbabwe cricket, didn't play county cricket again, if I'm right. At his age, he sort of moved on into what sounds like fishing equipment. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think he did have a little bit of a swan song with Zimbabwe because 2011 was the year that uh, Test Cricket returned to Zimbabwe. And so it was not too long after the IPL, they made their return against Bangladesh and beat them on that return. They hosted Pakistan for another one-off test and took that game to the fifth day, which was a pretty good effort, all things considered. And then later in the year, October, November, played a one-off test against New Zealand that was a bit of an epic, actually, in Bulawayo. 
And so, you know, I think there was a lot of satisfaction from those games for the players who were there because they'd been starved of test cricket for so long. Price hadn't played test cricket for seven years, basically, maybe even eight. When I was talking to him about what the IPL gig meant to him, he was saying it was fun and, it, you know, it was great to experience those crowds and he really enjoyed hanging out with Tendulkar and Andrew Simons and, and those sorts of people. But for him, playing for his country was always the best thing and matching up against some of the toughest players there. You know, he spoke about when he got Sachin out twice in the same test match and when he got Brian Lara out and those sorts of things. Those were the highlights of his career. So... Going back to your question, I mean, 2011 was pretty good on the international yeah. front. 2012, Zimbabwe played almost no cricket as finances started to bite again. 2013, they played a few games and then sadly he wasn't even really given a farewell series or even a farewell match. He was really badly treated by the main selector and he ended up retiring feeling a little begrudging in 2013. Has he worked with Zimbabwe cricket at all, or is that sort of it? He's off now with the fishing. Sorry, I can't stop being obsessed by the fishing. Neither can he, so that's quite appropriate. Um, <laughs> so he's been coaching in his backyard. He said he's got a net under some trees. A lot of the sort of houses in Harare have big leafy gardens, and, and he's got quite a bit of space there. So he's got a cricket net, and he coaches youngsters in the afternoon. He hasn't worked for Zimbabwe cricket as a coach. I don't know if that'll happen, but it could do at some point. Otherwise, yeah, he's making uh, spinning lures, as I said. He runs a sports shop. In fact, he ran the sports shop at Harare Sports Club up until quite recently. And otherwise, he just fishes whenever he can. And uh, he's very close friends with Heath Streak. And Streaky has a, a ranch down near Bulawayo that has a big dam on it. So the prices are often there and they're often fishing. I love the idea of him catching a fish, but the fish just finding a bit too much and him using his anger to get it in the boat rather than his fishing skills. Tristan, thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Tristan Home. There is an L in home on Twitter. I'm there as well, but you can also find all this information in the show notes. Please review us on Apple Podcasts because I've asked every week. And at this stage, if I stop asking, I don't even know what will happen. Probably cause some sort of rift in the space-time continuum. So please review us on Apple Podcasts to stop that happening. Although, I suppose in some ways it feels like we've already had a rift in the space-time continuum. In fact, I'm not really an expert in space-time continuum, so I'm not sure that that's true. Big thanks to Patreon supporters. They fund this series. So if you like it and you have some money, please pop over to Patreon and support us. And thanks to the many who do, because otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this sentence right now, nor this one. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston does all sorts of things for your ears. And the theme tune is by the Red Crickets. Podcast Network.